The following is a production of PMA Magazine. Hello, and welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of the PMA Podcast. In case you're new to PMA, PMA stands for Positive Mental Attitude, and we focus on positive news about tremendous people doing great things for their communities or for the world. PMA started as a print magazine in 2019, and you can learn more about us and our mission at our website, getthatpma.com. That's where you can get access to this podcast, check out our print magazine, and support us by picking up a t-shirt or some of our other merchandise. 100% of your money goes back into the magazine and helps us keep doing this, so we really appreciate all of your support. And with that, let's jump right into Season 1, Episode 3, our interview with Molly Harmon and Megan McClure of the Little Free Pantry's Seattle Project. Take what you need, leave what you can. These simple eight words provide a basic understanding of how the Little Free Pantries project is used by neighbors across the state of Washington and beyond. There's power in the collective, safety and community, and the project has quickly grown beyond the humble offering of free food. And sometimes that power starts with a simple act. In 2016, Molly Harmon installed a pantry in her front yard in Seattle, Washington, because she wanted to help feed those in her neighborhood who were experiencing food insecurity. Like the little free libraries, these pantry boxes are located throughout residential neighborhoods and people contribute when they can. In some cases, the pantries are stocked every morning and they're found empty by nighttime. So, how did this movement get started? Well, the first Little Free Pantry was actually in Fayetteville, Arkansas, early in 2016, installed by Jessica McClard. That first spark spread throughout the South and then the Midwest, and Molly heard about it and thought it would fit perfectly in her Seattle neighborhood. So what Jessica did, and what Molly did in Seattle later that year, was a simple act with a powerful truth hidden behind it. Sometimes it just takes a widespread crisis before the greater good kicks in and hard times can bring out the best in people. With the support of many volunteers, Molly has helped build and distribute over 150 pantries across the region. The effort extends as far east as the Yakima Nation Indian Reservation, and as far north as Bellingham, and then all the way down to Eugene, Oregon in the south. She's hoping that the network of pantries will grow even more throughout the northwest region over the next few years, continuing to connect people to each other by way of a shared human need. And with that, we'd like to introduce Season 1, Episode 3 of the PMA Podcast, featuring Molly Harmon and Megan McClure of Little Free Pantry, Seattle. Bon appetit! Can you talk a little bit about your upbringing and what the adults around you were doing in terms of giving back to the community or think about maybe a particular influence in your younger years that gave you an early taste of the value in giving back? Yeah. Hi. You know, it's, um, I, I, you know, my upbringing, I was raised in Oregon, um, and came from a big family, family of five kids surrounded by all my extended family, big Catholic family, aunties and uncles and cousins. 
you know, my upbringing was probably rooted quite a bit in definitely more at the liberal end of the social justice teachings of the Catholic Church. And I've probably, it probably resonated more for me than I, I of course, realized as a child. But, you know, just that, that idea that, you know, we definitely have to work in community to make our lives and those lives around us better. You know, if you are given a gift, you um, should find some way to share that outwardly to others who maybe aren't in that moment as fortunate as you. And so that unselfish mentality of sharing outwardly and caring for others, being in a big family, you know, you had to be relying on each other. You had to all participate in, in helping that family function. So that probably was a good part of my roots. And I've kind of carried that through to date, you know, through college and my 20s and today in my life too, and, and how I approach approach my community. You know, it's it's deeper than just me. You have this, this long career in community outreach, and you're also a personal chef by trade, but you're not just out there making food for rich people who want to outsource their cooking. You're, you're focusing on helping people adapt to dietary needs presented by health conditions and other life events. Can you talk about uh, real food a bit? Yeah. So I, I did like in my twenties, I had gotten quite sick. I, you know, was, I was doing my kind of community outreach work and, and development work with nonprofits and realized my health was becoming more and more a consideration for just the quality of my life. And um, traditional Western medicine wasn't at all able to find complete resolution to um, a lot of that chronic health issue stuff and realized one major component that was going to offer me healing was my nutrition and food. And it was a really surprising process for me to come to terms with because I, I am a really active person. I mean, in my 20s in Seattle, I was, you know, I commuted 100% by bike. And, you know, was going from Fremont to like, you know, I had like three jobs at that time. I was working at REI. I was a nanny. And, you know, I'm just kind of piecemealing it together as you do when you're 20 to make rent, right? So, and I was commuting all, all, all on bike. I was healthy. I had a decent diet, but just realized, you know, I was not eating the right kinds of foods that my body needed to kind of fully function. So I left my work and took a risk and found, um, you know, at, at that time, I needed to kind of learn how it, those days it was kind of considered alternative to some form, but kind of that plant-based diet it was still a bit on the fringe. And there were two schools in the country that offered a complete like plant-based curriculum. And so I headed off to Colorado and spent some time learning how to approach food through a hundred percent plant-based perspective and um, was purely going for my own personal reasons was just so I could learn to like heal myself and fell in love with it and was shown like the power of food really held for, for our body's health. So when I completed that, came back to Seattle, I had just gotten married before I had headed off to school. <laughs> so my husband and I were married and living in two separate places. He was back in Seattle cause we had rent to pay and <laughs> going, he was going to school. So we lived separate lives for a while, came back and um, knew I did not want to go back to an office work 
but wanted to do something with food. And, you know, the typical restaurant path was not going to work for me. Um, I'd waitressed enough in my days that I knew it wasn't the lifestyle I wanted. And so I started kind of this private chef model up. It was still um, fairly unusual unless you work directly for a client where they were you were salaried with them and so I kind of built this model and just kind of worked my ass off to build a clientele base that allowed me to form a complete business from it and didn't have to keep working side jobs to support myself that was you know back in about 2005 so about 15 years ago yeah it's been an honor and a privilege to work with some of my clients I've had clients who have had lung transplants to um, some who you know, dealing with MS to um, Parkinson's to, you know, serious autoimmune um, disorders, cancer survivors, um, people going through chemo, you know, a whole gamut of individuals who just had a respect for how food was going to work into their health plan and their healing and wanted to invest in that component of their medical plan. So yeah, I mean, I, I took great it was great privilege. I mean, I, I view the kitchen as one of the most intimate places in a person's house. Um, every time I walk into my clients' homes, I kind of just take a breath because I feel so much is hidden within a, in a kitchen. People's personal struggles, um, happy moments. You know, I mean, we we gravitate as a as a being around food for for all those social and comfort moments in our life. And but more important, you know, especially when a person is going through a difficult time, a medical moment, food is even more essential. So. And you, you build just a really intimate connection with your clients because you are, you're feeding them. You know, it, it's not like you're just like, here, here's some food I think you'll like. You have to be aware of and empathetic towards the, the, your, the people that you're feeding and you have to give them something that's good for them, but also that they are going to want and connect with, right? As the sort of point of origination for that sustenance, I think you absolutely have to develop this innate sense of empathy for what's going to feel good to them when they when they eat it and the experience of eating it and then once they put it into their body. Do you think that chefs have the, a special um, like flavor of empathy that other people don't necessarily have? I think good chefs do. Absolutely. I think you can taste it and feel it too when you walk into an establishment. And I don't, it doesn't matter if it's like a four-star restaurant to the taco truck that's down the street. Like you can taste and feel the time that, the thought, the time that goes into that cooking. Um, and I know it sounds kind of <laughs> just loosey-goosey, but you know, I mean like that sense of love and care, you know, I mean, you can make a tomato sauce and just throw everything into the pot and you don't let anything caramelize you know, sugars release, any of that tasting as you go just to get it quite right. But, you know, a restaurant or an establishment that's doing that, like that comes through, but empathy has to be part of that component because it takes time. And I believe like for a person to be a truly empathetic person, empathy doesn't come quickly, right? I mean, empathy takes time to sit, listen, observe, understand. And that's the same with food. Like you got to give food time to, to be its best. Do you think that you have to suffer or in some ways be on the negative receiving end of like a lack of empathy in order to actually value and have that empathy yourself as a person? 
I think like most things in life, if you haven't had the opportunity to stop and feel something, it's harder to um, empathize with a person, right? Have you experienced food insecurity yourself? I have not. I've absolutely not. And it's something that um, yeah, I give thanks for every single day and pause. And as I'm putting food into the pantry I host, you know, I it causes me to, to stop and think about that fact and um, try to feel what that person who may be receiving from, you know, the pantry I host, what that that moment must feel like for them. Some of those feelings that they may be experiencing are um, feelings of comfort in regards that this little box is communicating to them that their neighbors are there to support, right? Like that, that, um, that feeling of understanding that there's this reliance that they can count on within their neighborhood. If I'm correct, the first little free pantry was in Arkansas, correct? Yeah, Jessica McClard. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, but now it seems like it's uh, mostly a Seattle phenomenon. Can you talk about the origin history of the chapter or the the little free pantry outposts that you started here in Seattle? Yeah, so Jessica McClard, um, you know, she started the first pantry, um, I think it was about 2015, somewhere in there. And it really, that movement really exploded through the South and, and the Midwest and up the East Coast. And I read an article about her. My sister had passed me an article shortly after she had kind of started it and it resonated for me. And I thought that makes perfect sense. So we put up a pantry in our yard about 2016. And I had just kind of been waiting and I kept thinking, you go, boy, this is going to happen here. Like the Northwest culture, like this is something we would absolutely embrace and fit within kind of our, our general value system as a, as a larger um, community. And it never really did. There were a few um, larger pantries scattered throughout the Puget Sound, and they all kind of had Facebook groups and really active and supportive, but it didn't really go beyond that. And when COVID struck, it just felt like the right time. I had written a small grant to the Awesome Foundation prior um, late 2019 and had received some money to build a collection of pantries and um, just hadn't acted on it quite yet. And when COVID hit, I just thought, oh my gosh, this is this is what we're supposed to be doing right now. So my husband and I, we started building the pantries. There were six of them and we offered them out to our neighborhood and the response was just overwhelming. And I thought, well, shit, this is like, like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing right now. There was just something inside me that was propelling me. And, and, you know, sometimes you have that voice inside you and, and then you got that other voice who's countering and you're like, this is ridiculous. Like you can't be doing like, you, you got to go back to your job and you got to like, this isn't the responsible thing you need to be doing right now. Right. As an adult and as a parent and you've got a mortgage and, all that stuff. And, but then that other voice was just kept nagging at me and pushing, continued to push me forward. And so that was, um, you know, in March and started with those six pantries. We started a GoFundMe site, Facebook group, you know, had a couple of volunteers who came on board who, you know, were absolutely like dedicated and, you know, just making some really wonderful change. And we had builders come into us, like we'll build some pantries. It was absolutely a all grassroots motion. And, um, to date now we've got like 150 pantries, Megan, like got small pantries and large pantries going up between the Puget Sound area up to Bellingham, Northern Oregon, over to Yakima and the Yakima nation. And we've got this incredible map on our website that, um, not only 
list the pantries we've built and outsourced. But people are, you know, have heard about this and we've had some press through various media sources that have just kind of spread this this model of neighbor giving to neighbor, um, supporting each other in solidarity, this mutual aid kind of power of collective community. And people have just grasped onto it and um, built their own pantries. And, you know, they'll email us and we'll get their pantry up on the map. So, you know, I mean, a lot is coming from it. We've got some community foundations who are building networks of pantries and outlining areas. So, you know, this concept of networks of pantries, which will um, sit there not only for neighbors to give and receive, from, but are also a viable way for kind of those traditional emergency food organizations like food banks to source their food into so that they are getting their food to people um, in a very low barrier access point. Right. There's there's no ID required. They're open 24 seven. There's um, an anonymous factor to them. Um, so people who may have a difficult time are not quite ready to source through going to their neighborhood food bank or maybe just need a couple meals during that week of their rent being due. Right. You know, so these food banks are seeing these pantry networks as, as a way to um, extend their services, um, which is super powerful, right? If we can transform the way that the traditional model is done and bring in these other models that are absolutely feasible to do on a very community, in a, generated through community, right? I mean, there's more power in a collection of people. So, Megan, why don't you tell us about how you found your way into this decentralized movement for distributing food uh, all over the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I got introduced to the project last summer. I was volunteering with the Seattle Pedaling Relief Project, uh, which was a small group of cyclists who saw the need for food and materials to be delivered to homes across King County and kind of mobilized and built relationships with food banks and other kind of food relief mutual aid groups. And um, we got connected to the pantries. There was a strong interest from the food banks to be able to offer food 24-7, not just when they could open hours of their spaces. And so um, we, you know, every week had maybe anywhere from five to 10 volunteer events distributing food around the neighborhoods and really enjoyed uh, meeting pantry stewards and learning about why they kind of joined the project. And then eventually I got to meet Molly <laughs> after l learning about a lot of different other people's interest in the project, but finally got to meet Molly. And um, we just kind of clicked on the our ideas and shared values about collaboration and power in, in groups and um, kind of solidarity and some of these uh, ideas she's been talking about. And um, yeah, I'm, my background is anthropology and uh, design. And so I'm really interested in um, how through this movement, we're kind of uh, reshaping and redesigning our culture in the Pacific Northwest and thinking about the future and how we can share that with other communities, maybe around the country is really exciting. So you're the perfect person to answer this question then. I know that you serve many communities, but can you try to zoom out and just describe the community at large that Little Free Pantries serves as you see them and what their sort of core needs and challenges are? Yeah, I think that, you know, there's a lot of communities that live in, in urban and rural areas. Um, I think that when communities are healthy and connected and active, those, are, those communities are safe. And I think safety is a big 
concern in our country and world right now. And I think that, you know, knowing your neighbors and being able to feel and cultivate a, a sense of caring in on a hyperlocal level gives this additional sense of security and safety that people know who you are and are kind of looking out. And I think that human beings want to feel not only nourished, but safe where they live. And I, so I think that, that that this model is super powerful for not only, you know, building communities. It's crazy that a, a box, a, a wooden box could build a community up, you know, but I think it really does have the, the, the potential to do that, but also this additional sense of, of safety. You make a really, really important point, which is truthfully not something that I was even thinking about until you just mentioned it. This isn't just about food, and it's not just about food insecurity and feeding people. It's There's a larger halo effect of support of, hey, these are people in my community that today they're looking out for other people. And they're in a position to where they can help. But, you know, nothing is guaranteed. And maybe down the road, the tides turn and the roles reversed, right? And so as a community, we need to sort of build these muscles so that we can roll with whatever comes down the road and that we we can all basically, it's just this reciprocal effect of we're just helping each other. It's not like somebody with the pantry is helping everybody else. It's like, we're just getting, we're getting good as a community to back each other up. Does that sound right? Yeah. Resiliency, I think. It's absolutely. That's amazing. Yeah. And I think COVID, like Molly said, COVID was sort of the perfect storm for this thing to kind of, you know, grow in the way that it has in the last nine months, 10 months. You know, it's almost like the natural disaster sparked this very human response in a lot of us who are involved and care about this project that like, we need to have stronger systems in place to be able to survive. And even just the, you know, focusing on someone being potentially exposed to COVID and needing to shelter in place, like who does that person have to be able to bring them food if they can't leave their home? Let's set aside Amazon Fresh and all of those delivery services. <laughs> who do they have to actually take care of them? And nearby, maybe, if people are, you know, restricted in their travel. So, you know, hyperlocal community is more important, I think, now than ever before. And the pantries really themselves in their physical form, but also everything else that happens around the pantry and, and between people building relationships is what communities need to be able to be resilient. One component of what we're really trying to do with this project is creating this model of kind of food commons. So food resources that are available to all without barriers or the or regardless of need, right? So, you know, the goal of the project is to create this community-rich place where food's seen as this shared resource through kind of social practice rather than a private good. And the hope is that through this action, communities connect and they become stronger and more resilient. You know, and it's it's that idea that we are trying to offer a place for an individual in the community to come, you know, and it's not so much what that person can do for the community, but, you know, more about bringing that person to the community, right? So not so much work alongside the community, but we're really bringing them into the community. And that action can look in many different ways, right? I mean, they could build a pantry box, they could be a pantry host, they could contribute to that pantry, um, or they can receive from that pantry. And you know, there's numerous times where myself and my son are walking through the neighborhood and there's a, a number of pantries in our neighborhood and, you know, it's, it's hot and there's a juice box in a pantry. And, you know, there's that moment of pause as my son says, you know, well, we, 
I don't really need that juice. But we're like, we got juice boxes at home. And I go, but that's not the idea. It's like, yes, we have, we have a juice box at home. You're thirsty right now, but this pantry is here to support us. So we can take that juice box, drink it and enjoy that juice box, give gratitude to our neighbor who put that juice box in there and then come back and replace that juice box. Right. Um, or with something else. I mean, it's, it's this full circle of just neighbor supporting neighbor. Um, and some of us have greater needs than others when it comes to food access. But some of us, you know, at different moments have the need for a, a juice box. It brings up, there's this, um, we have a volunteer who got involved with a pedaling relief project specifically because um, he, sh- he shared this story. It was a moment his father has dementia and he wandered off over the summer. It was hot out. They couldn't find him for hours, had the police looking for him. And finally he turned up and he had this bottle of water in his hand and they said dad where did you get that water and he's like well there's a box on the street that had some water and and there was this moment for this this volunteer who said like that potentially like was a transformational moment for my father who is elderly has health conditions it's hot out it kept him hydrated and that's what brought him to the project there was this recognition that these boxes serve more than just you know, it's, 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 it's a deeply rooted contribution to a neighborhood, these little boxes. So I've noticed that people have left notes in, in these, in the boxes. Can you um, think of a specific example of a note or a message that you've heard from people that has stuck with you this, all this time? Well, yeah, one comes to mind. I'll Megan share one too if she's got one. But um, one that's kind of sat with me is this note that came, just a simple note. And it was, you know, many of the notes are notes of gratitude. But it said, thank you for placing, you know, coconut milk in this pantry. It makes my meals just feel and taste so much better, you know. And the gist of it was it just was transforming her to a point of comfort. And it, um, it did say, you know, this is not something I can get at, at my food bank. Um, so that remembrance of like the way people connect to food, um, and the culturally significant and relevant factor to food and how that plays to our emotional nourishment, especially in this time of challenge and crisis, you know, that, that, um, nourishment from foods of your past foods that feel best to your body because of your upbringing and your culture those all play into our overall health and the importance of that kind of access to those foods isn't always possible through a food bank because their capacity to it to to get those foods to purchase those foods but also be able to resource those foods outwardly to the multitudes of cultures who of people who may be um, resourcing from that food bank it's just not possible on on the scale of work they do but pantries can do that pantries can acknowledge our neighbors who sit around us, the the cultural differences that sit around us, the diversity, all the beauty that sits within that, and that respectful exchange of food through that acknowledgement of, hey, you know, this pantry, you know, what foods really resonate for the people who sit around this pantry could be fish sauces and curries and spices that, you know, Southern Africa, you know, it's a whole, you know, it's different, but then this pantry may resonate more pastas and tomato sauce and and um, pancake mix right and that's that's to the discretion of the pantry hosts and those people who sit around that pantry to um, to recognize and and honor 
One of the first things that you advise people of who want to, who are like inquiring about possibly hosting a pantry is that they should talk to their neighbors first about any potential concerns. What kind of concerns usually come up? And um, have you heard of cases where people decide not to install one because they did the, they did the diligence and they just decided like, maybe we shouldn't do this? Yeah. My mom put a pantry up in front of her house and she had some great conversations with her neighbors before she installed it. And she had some really difficult ones with people on her street that she thought she was probably the closest to, you know, had the strongest relationship with she went to first. And those one in particular was the hardest conversation she had. And, you know, kind of not to get into details of it, but essentially about, you know, who is this really for and who's this going to attract? And some of these these uh, fears and and maybe misconceptions about people or groups of people that they in their you know 15 year relationship of being neighbors had never had a reason to talk about but it it ended well and they came into agreement and the neighbors are supporting it now but yeah I mean mostly we've heard stories of of support um, from stewards from from pantry hosts but there are the occasional conversations that are very emotionally charged and, and it's great that, you know, that hosts, we, we can have given them support. I definitely talked my mom through some talking points about how to kind of provide a little bit of whether it's data about um, the usage of the pantries or, you know, education language. Sometimes people just lack the language to be able to talk about issues that they feel scared of because there's a bit of, you know, they haven't learned up on things or whatever the case may be. We also recently had uh, a pantry returned to us. The individual was very excited about being the host at, in front of their apartment building and um, got a lot of buy-in from all the residents in the apartment and got the pantry delivered. I think it was middle of December or so. And over the course of like two or three weeks, there was a change in management at the apartment building. And so they said that it wasn't going to be possible to dedicate that uh, space for the pantry um, on the grounds of the apartment building. So he was really upset about that. and <laughs> He was disappointed, but thankfully there are a lot of other pantries nearby in that neighborhood. So we connected them to the the other um, pantry hosts sort of within a mile or so. And so that community is now engaged and committed to kind of um, keeping those other pantries stocked nearby. It just won't be right in front of their building. But yeah, it's totally a mix. Molly, do you have other experiences yeah. that come to mind? It's been really, I mean, for the number of pantries we put out there, the number of, of negative experiences have been really quite minimal. I, I second what Megan said about her mom's experience. I just had like a 20-minute conversation in my alley with a new pantry host who came to pick up his pantry, and he thanked the project. He's like, thank you so much for um, requiring us to have to have this conversation with our neighbors. Same situation. He's said, you know, I've, I've been in this neighborhood for 20 years and feel like our neighborhood is strong and we all know each other quite well, but, um, you you know, this did cause some discomfort for one of our neighbors and it all ended great. You know, everyone is in agreement now, but it did cause them to have to go a little deeper in their relationship. And, um, you know, he feels they're better for that. So, um, you know, there's there's those moments. We did have another pantry returned at one point, and it was one neighbor particularly who just was continued to um, put up um you know, disagreement with the pantry, even though the pantry was, was super active and engaged by the other neighbors. People were, you know, regularly keeping it stocked. It was regularly being emptied. It was it was a pantry that was being utilized, but this one neighbor 
who um, this pantry host just just works so hard for about six weeks to provide information, um, clear data. Tried to, just took time to talk through it, and I felt it was more important to keep the peace in the neighborhood than like this box was not doing the complete. It, it was caught, it was, she decided to pass it onward. Um, but the irony of it all is since then, there's been multiple other pantries that have popped up independent of our project near that location. So, you know, it's something this neighbor who wasn't comfortable with is still having to, you know, internally have to confront some of her misconceived conceptions. Strategic partnerships have to be an important part of scaling this thing. And I'm certain that you didn't start this out with like a plan knowing exactly how it was going to scale. I mean, you you described it. You're like, I don't even know if this is a good idea or, you know, whatever. And, and then it just kind of starts going. And I don't want to use the term like gets away from you, but I think you probably have times and moments where you feel like you're really having to keep up with it. And the partnerships are really important, right? Because they come in, they they fill in some of those gaps and they actually make it scalable and sustainable and they make it possible. Can you give us an example of a major challenge or a potential setback that you've encountered that a partnership really helped you get through? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, to your point of um, this whole thing getting out of hand, um, <laughs> we, um, y- you know, we we have those conversations where we're like, "Wow, this is this is a remarkable and incredible what this opportunity that's being presented to us is is it." the smart use of our our energy and time like where it's caused us to kind of pull back and and reevaluate what we want our purpose complete purpose to be like what are we best at and um and that is where some partners come in i've been getting some of that feedback for instance like you know i mean i think i think also to this point before i go there like this this whole project i want to make sure it the the grace and acknowledgement is given to the volunteers who've made this happen because we are all volunteer and we've just had remarkable people who have raised their hand to be part of this from builders to tech in to you know the whole gamut and i think one of our powerful attributes in all of this is that organically what the method of growth that we've taken is this kind of collective leadership Right. There's it's not like this hierarchy of top down approach. It's it's um, I mean, if there were one leader in this whole project, people would probably say it is me because someone someone has to, you know, get a conversation started. And that's probably what I've been doing. My biggest role has been in all of this. But other than that, it's it's a giant experiment is what this is. And we've just been so lucky to have volunteers who've come to the table who are, you know, have these ideas and we say, great, go with it and let's see where it takes us. And this is where we are today because of them. But yeah, the challenges that have come about are, um, you know, um, like one we're facing right now is just like the maintenance of pantries. Um, originally, when we began this project, the idea was that we hand this box off and it's the host's responsibility to kind of keep it maintained. And for the most part, that's what's happening. But there's a recognition now that we probably, our role would probably and should probably include some additional support to those hosts in the maintenance of those pantries. And so what does that look like? It's not major maintenance 
sweetness or just it's just a two by two box right but sometimes there there needs to be that that point of outside support and so we're kind of working through some of those trouble points right now another group you know they the Kent Community Foundation they really understood what we were trying to do with this project back in um, July when I first started working together with them and they felt um, saw the value in a pantry network through the Kent Valley so collectively as partners of that foundation you've got you know traditional groups like the Rotarians to city council members to nonprofit groups you know the whole gamut but they're they've come together and they're beginning to build and place pantries throughout the Kent Valley and that process in advising them and them asking me questions and and working through some of the trouble points of the operational end of all that is helped either affirm some things that we've done in the past and confirm some things that we need to probably change to be better at what we do. So that collaborative process has um, really helped us become better at what we're trying to do with this project. You know, we want more people to feel empowered to take on big projects like this. And I think that's the really, really great advice is like, hey, you don't have to know all the answers right when you start, but definitely start to think about, okay, if this thing rolls and it's good and it's successful, what are the things that I'm going to have to do to keep it going? And who are the people and the partnerships that I'm going to need to form and, and bring in so that they can help make it a sustainable practice, right? Absolutely. And I, I know one thing that has helped me through this process and before it really ballooned to where it is now and, and having, you know, the multitude of, of advisors and, and contributions to the question of what are your values? What are your values here with this project? really spend some time thinking about that and forming that language so that you have four to five sentences to go back to to reflect on because there will be times when you have opportunities that feel really opportunistic right but that might not be the right thing for you to be doing and for the project to do so to have that set of ground ground rules or that value statement will keep you on track to 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 your true purpose of of an effort how do you know when you're successful like what metrics do you use to gauge whether or not what you're doing is working <laughs> that's a really great question you know megan and i were talking earlier today um i had shared something with her and this is a slightly off track but it's one way i lead my life i can say is you know as i was building my business i started down the path of bringing employees and chefs on because i i had the business to it for it and you know one of those rules as as a small business uh, you know entrepreneur is you just don't turn work away because you don't know when it's going to come around again right i mean you're you're slushing through it and you, you just always keep keep going forward and um so i brought on other chefs and i i had a team of chefs for a couple of years and growing my business and it just was not feeling right i wasn't getting gratification from it it uh, wasn't enjoying it the the model of my my business shift did. And so I slowly dissolved that. And now, you know, doing this in, in tandem with my business, it's really, Megan pointed this out to me. She said, you know, look, you're, you're feeding people who pay you and now you're feeding people who can't pay you. And where is your greatest satisfaction coming from? It's, it's this evolution of the two. And, um, so to answer your question, like, how do you know, like, 
you know, what is success? I think I'm recognizing the value that just success is just, I think for this project is, is pantries, you know, more low barrier access points to food for our communities. And it's plain and simple. I mean, are the numbers of, uh, it's just mine, but it's just so saddening to me. Like uh, this, statistic I was just reading, as a result of COVID, the number of Washingtonians who can't put food on their tables has more than doubled. So it was before COVID about 850,000 people who struggled to put food on their table. And now it's 1.6 million people in the state of Washington. And those people, a good number of them are all housed. There are neighbors who sit around us. And it's those people who were laid off because of COVID for whatever industry they were in. They are just at this point of challenge that was nothing done to them other than <laughs> COVID and, and mismanagement and leadership of this country, right? It doesn't have to be like this. But instead, you know, I mean, to find the good in all of this, it's what projects like ours are trying to do and the numerous other like mutual aid projects that have popped up since COVID that are um, a reflection of the values of those communities. It's all about the power of collective effort. So once again, I'm talking to Molly Harmon and Megan McClure from the Little Free Pantry Seattle organization. Before we close this down, can you tell people how they can best support what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. I think Megan and I can both talk to this um, briefly and um, probably share two different perspectives because of where we, we focus our time in the project. But, you know, donations are always welcome. We use the money tax deductible donation to put right back into materials to build more pantries. We all we are all volunteer run. So, you know, that that is our purpose right now. Um, one of our major purposes is building more boxes. So that is one quick, easy way for a person to support the project but also take a look at our map and see where there are pantries. Um, if you feel there needs to be a pantry in a location where there is not, we're working right now to really broaden our scope. So we welcome feedback of where a pantry could be. If you had introductions for us to make that pantry connection for that location, that is invaluable. Um, we so would welcome any introductions. So that is an important piece too, is, is while we're trying to help connect communities to each other, we also you know are relying on others to connect us to to others so those are two two big places and of course you could be a pantry host if it felt right to you and you can find all that through our website and ways to connect to us and on instagram <laughs> and facebook <laughs> uh yeah i would just add if you are an artist or know an artist particularly a younger or bipoc uh, individual who'd like to have some experience painting or collaging or any type of art really medium that would uh, help cover up a, one of our pantries. Um, we're absolutely looking for artists and we'll this year um, hopefully do some grant writing to get some more funding to be able to compensate artists. More on that later. We really have been talking a lot kind of over the last couple of months about how, you know, 2021 is hopefully going to be this transformational transition year out of what we've seen the last 10 months with COVID and, and really hope that this project can give the local artists who may have been struggling over the last year during the pandemic get them back on their feet. And so if we can support the artist community in Seattle and in Washington, we'd really like to be a part of that. We want to thank Molly and Megan for their time and for trusting us to share their amazing story with you. 
This episode, including all music and sound design, was handcrafted by me, Matt Johnston, here at PMA headquarters in West Seattle, Washington. Our intro was adapted from the print article, which you can find in issue number six of our print magazine, and was written by John Opsand Sutherland. You can find PMA6, subscribe to the magazine, or grab some PMA merch by heading over to our website, getthatpma.com. Every dollar you spend there goes right back into making it possible for us to keep bringing you these stories, and we really appreciate your support, so thanks. If you liked what you heard today, please consider reviewing us on your podcasting platform of choice. For some reason, that helps us get discovered by more people, and we'd love that. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time on the PMA Podcast.